BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today's Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, April 20th. Oh my God, it's reefer day, Ben. Yeah, happy reefer day. It's always reefer day in the Ben Jarofsky show. <laughs> it is, but you know, on such occasion. By the way, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't heard the bong in a while. Oh, happy reefer day, everybody. How about my beloved Brightwood? Can we just give them a shout out? My beloved Brightwood home delivery every day. Yeah, I've been subscribing to the Brightwood since the 70s. Anyway, they have a, the fold-out is a reefer ad. They're all aboard the reefer bandwagon. Hey, where were you guys doing the heavy lifting when it was me and Mick Dumpke, huh? Yeah, where it's were like, you at with that big Ben Jarofsky show ad? Am I right? Oh, yeah. Uh, ben, could you uh, please just stay in that little <laughs> corner thing we have for you? Don't scare people. <laughs> no, but anyway, happy reefer day to one and all. And I'm happy to sometimes get a little reefer revenue. All right, guys. Happy Come reefer on. day, everybody. You know what? Maybe I'll take a gummy during today's show. How about that? Huh? How are you feeling about that, Ben? Yeah, take a gummy. On the, uh, I do not condone that. Uh, let me just say this. Dennis. Well, I do I'll not condone that. Turn my camera off when I do it. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, 420 with, yes, it's true. <laughs> Mendoza report. It's just moments away. But before we do this, we need to thank our sponsors. Sponsors like SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana. The Chicago Federation of Labor, our sponsors. As well as Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know. The city of Chicago. Where to go. What to do. What to eat. What to drink. What to smoke. 420. Go check it out. Maybe they'll give you some advice. That and so much more. ChicagoReader.com uh, and ChicagoReader.com slash Jarofsky. Not only will you get the latest article from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Ben, what's your latest column about this week? Oh, my goodness. I uh, just uh, finished it yesterday. It's about it's it's an analysis of, of Lori Lightfoot's response to uh, uh, the Adam Toledo uh, shooting. And I will you probably heard some bits and pieces of it during uh, Friday's interview with Troy LaRavier. Mm. Uh, so let me just say, I don't want to give too much of it away because I want everyone to read the column, but that's what I uh, weigh in on. Oh, you know, that's that's good. Thought it was going to be about rumor gate over the weekend, but I we'll guess get not. to rumor gate. We'll get to it. <laughs> ChicagoReader.com for the latest column from Ben Jarofsky and to become a binhead. That's what we call avid listeners of this program. If you listen to this show, if you've been listening and you're like, boy, I want to help these two weirdos out. Well, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. You can be a binhead. It's a three-tier system. You can join the avenue. You can be in the alley or you can be living in Benny Boulevard. Oh, my God. Go check it out. For more information, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky and you will get a deal on Ben Jarofsky's book. It's his greatest hits covering 40 years of Chicago journalism. Yes, my friends, 40 years, four zero. We love Ben Jarofsky. Your 420 Ben Jarofsky show starts now. It is Tuesday, April 20th. And now live from my apartment back in Chicago and his attic, 
This is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, Paul Strauss, and it's the return of Illinois controller Susanna Mendoza. And now your host, not a controller. <laughs> Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. We're called. <laughs> I'm sorry, a controller. Yes, Ben Jarofsky is now in charge of state finances. Help us. God help us all. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yes. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Lori Rumorgate Tuesday. And here's why. Good week. You have a good weekend, D? Yeah. Had a great weekend. Yeah. Yeah, you look rested. He must oh. have had a good weekend. I went, I went back to bowling last night. Everybody, yeah, pandemics, sorta, kinda, maybe. We hope over. I was wearing a mask. Got my two shots. Had a lot of fun. So it's good to be back doing that. Uh, everybody was wearing a mask except for a couple of guys who voted for Trump. Hey, you know that's how it is in the United States these days. D. Okay. Uh, anyway, what else this weekend? I saw Concrete Cowboy. I should say I tried to see Concrete Cowboy. We'll get to that. It's a great flick. Idris Elba. I urge everyone to run, 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 run to watch it. It's on Netflix. I did see it, but had a few interruptions. And that's the reason I say I tried to see it because at roughly the same time that my wife and I sat down to watch it, Lori Rumorgate blew up. I want an answer. That's one of the guys spreading the rumor, Raylo. That's the sound of rumor gate blowing up. Hold on, let me do it. I want an answer. <laughs> Here's how it went down in my house. Got a call from a friend. Let's just call him Billy Bob to save him. And he and hey, Billy Bob, how's it going? <laughs> Billy Bob. Not your finest moment, Billy Bob. <clears throat> I'll just tell you this about Billy Bob. He's a lefty. A real hardcore, can't stand Mayor Lori Lightfoot lefty. Like the ones who say, Ben, you're not hard enough on Lori. Okay, that kind of lefty. Hold on, D. Someone's calling me. Let's see. This could be. Oh, there we go. It's your phone during a podcast. That's Uh, cool. He got it. (laughs) Our guest, our first guest is having a little troubles with the link. Must be a baby boomer. Uh Uh-oh. I'll resend them. We'll we'll work it out. Uh, We'll take a break after the opening and we'll work it out. Anyway, where was I? Okay, yes. Billy Bob calls me up. A lefty. Hardcore lefty. All right. The kind of hardcore lefty that I'm very familiar with because some would say I am of that ilk. Not really happy uh, with the way Lori Lightfoot is running Chicago. Anyway. Billy Bob sets off the following exchange with me, which is more or less a pretty accurate rendition of what went down. Billy goes, I'm going to tell you something, but you have to keep it a secret. And I'm like, okay, no, 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 no. Seriously, man, this is off the record. And I'm like, listen here, listen here, host of a pod, listen here, host of a podcast who has an outlet for, uh, you know, thousands of people to listen to. I want you to keep this a secret. Why are they going to you for this information? Well, not only that, he's he's calling me on a Saturday night, and I want to watch Concrete Cowboy. And it's like, who am I going to tell? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He goes, trust me, you're going to want to tell somebody when you hear what I'm going to tell you. So after I swear to secrecy, 
He drops the bombshell. That's the bombshell. Dude. I want an answer. <laughs> Mayor Lori Lightfoot got into some kind of altercation with her wife. Don't worry about the details because I have none. And the police allegedly came to their house and broke up an alleged fight. Allegedly. And you'll see tomorrow. Lori Lightfoot is going to resign. And then there's this pause. And I'm thinking, you interrupted Concrete Cowboy to tell me this? <laughs> I <laughs> really wanted to watch Concrete Cowboy. And he goes, what do you think of that? And I go, I don't believe you. And he's like, it's true. My source is good. And he goes, and I go, who's your source? And he goes, I cannot reveal my source. I'm like, Look, has any newspaper published it? No. Then I say it's not true. Because if there was a kernel of truth to what you're telling me, at least one reporter would have tweeted it out. And he's like, well, you know, Ben, maybe the reporters don't know. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Just think about this. Gregory Pratt's been on this show. A total freaking news junkie. I think he's got like, his phone, you know, like surgically attached to his brain. So it like is sending out impulses every minute of the day. What's going on? That's what a news junkie is, folks. And then he could, he's a millennial too. He knows how to tweet. Unlike me. But that's the biggest joke, by the way, D, that they would swear me to secrecy. They go, well, you could tweet it. <laughs> could. Yeah. Oh, this is the day I finally start tweeting. The numbers would go through the roof to you if that were to happen, huh? By the way, I'm getting phone calls and texts from my guests. I, I guess he's having trouble with the connection. Well, whatever. We'll get through it. Anyway, so I'm like, if Gregory Pratt hasn't tweeted it out, then it's not true. He's a millennial. He's a news junkie. He's a reporter. His job would be on the line. If he were to print something out that was so off out of the realm of possibility. So if he's not tweeting it out, it's not true. And I'm going back to my movie. And then like, he's mad at me, Billy Bob, because I'm like spoiling the party. Hey, God, you got to be so serious about everything. Okay. <laughs> so I turn back to Concrete Cowboy, which, by the way, D is a very good flick. Well, I mean, you've been talking about it like a lot today. So I hope. And then. <laughs> That's I want an answer. It's not something you ignore. <laughs> Man, everyone's texting me now. Have you heard the news? Have you heard about Lori? Are you following this? It's unbelievable. And it's like that scene in Bye Bye Birdie, a reference now I'm going to make that all my millennial listeners are going, huh? What? <laughs> it's some old movie. You don't need to know about it. But there's a scene where everybody's gossiping on a phone. Have you heard about Judy? She's wearing Bobby's pin. Blah, blah, blah. That's what it's like. Guys are all gossiping. And I got one eye on the movie, which, by the way, is a great flick. Thing. And the other eye on my phone to keep up with all the text coming in. And I'm trying to find anything <laughs> resembling a credible source to justify so many people spending so much time on a Saturday night tweeting and texting. And there is none. The best we can come up with is a tweet from Jay Malgreen, our old friend, the mayoral candidate, ran against Lori a couple years ago as an activist, where he said Lori will be stepping down, and then he deleted. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and the old tweet and delete. Yeah, tweet and delete. 
Come on, J-Mo. I'm just saying, you put it out there, you should keep it up. That's, yeah. Anyway, I held my ground. You'd be proud of me, Chicago. I said I didn't believe it. This is BS. You guys have too much time on your hands. Twitter sucks. Exhibit A of why Twitter's a waste of time. Been consistent on this subject for a long time, people. It's like the song by Ario Speedwagon, one of Dennis's favorite songs. Heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from another. You've been messing around. I hate Dennis. that song. <laughs> That's what it's like. None of you had any substance to this rumor. You just heard it from a friend. Sure enough, next day, everyone's kind of salty. <laughs> Please. Just ignore how insane I was last night. Here's the thing. As I discovered, as I discovered that the rumor came from the police department and it was spread by my dear lefty friends who are really upset at the police these days for all the shootings is justifiably upset. And this is a sure sign, ladies and gentlemen, that we have lost our mind as society When police give their version of a shooting, usually that it's justified, in quotes, and that the guy had a gun in his hand, uh, even though video clearly shows that he didn't have a gun in his hand. When he does that lefties go, you cannot trust the police. But when some unsourced cop tweets out that Lori got in trouble (laughs) with her wife and he's going to resign, lefties are like, well, it must be true because it comes from the cops. We've lost our minds, people. You have officially gone insane. But wait, the story's not over. The next day, Lori Lightfoot's allies are playing a victim card. My good friend Kelly Cassidy, KC, you know I love you. But come on. Kelly sent out this tweet. All right, Chicago, grow up. This was racist and sexist and misogynist. As if Lori Lightfoot's allies would not have been tweeting out the same unsubstantiated rumors that they picked up for some cop had it been rumors about one of their political foes. Could you imagine if there were rumors were about Jamal Green or Stacey Davis Gates? They've been tweeting them out. Ben, have you heard it? They've been passing that rumor around like it was a bucket of popcorn at a movie. Speaking of which, Concrete Cowboy D. It's a really great flick. We got a great show today, everybody. Senator Paul Strauss of Washington, D.C. is with us. I think we figured it out and we got him in here. We had a little trouble in the, uh, trying to set up that exchange, but I think we got it off. Uh, State Controller Susanna Mendoza will be joining us. Yes, that's Susanna Mendoza. Haven't had her on the show in a while. We'll be talking about state finance. Ah, we'll get into some political discussions uh, as well. So we've got a great show, a lot of political talk ahead. We're going to take a break, make sure we got Senator Paul Strauss uh, connected. And when we come back, we'll be talking to the senator about making D.C. a state. About time we do this, folks. It's insane that we don't. Uh, And from a constitutional standpoint, from a fairness standpoint, from a demographic standpoint, and politically speaking, as a leftist center Democrat, from a political standpoint. So we'll have that conversation with Paul Strauss when we return. And now the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. 
things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader Stay Home Puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly newspaper since 1971. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from my apartment and his attic. You know, for the last few months, I've been talking about this. Uh, I've been kind of obsessing on this issue for a long, long time. I never could understand why the District of Columbia was not a state, why the District of Columbia didn't have the full voting rights, the residents who live there, everybody in this country. Now, probably had this opinion, this attitude, this worldview, because I am a Democrat of the left of center persuasion. Uh, and as such, I have many kindred spirit uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., because most of the people who live there are Democrats, and quite a good chunk of them uh, are the left of center persuasion. Anyway, my dear friend uh, Lenny uh, hooked up this interview. I'm really happy she did, so a shout-out to Lenny, with uh, Senator Paul Strauss, the shadow senator for Washington, D.C., and a strong advocate for making D.C. a state. So this is an issue all you progressives and all you liberals and all you lefties here in Chicagoland can jump aboard. I think this is a really important issue uh, that uh, progressives should be championing, not just in D.C., but throughout the country. So without further ado, Senator Paul Strauss, thanks for being on the show. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. We had a little trouble connecting you, but uh, now you're sounding really clear. And uh, so let's get right to it. I had three issues, three reasons why uh, D.C. should be a state. There's the fairness issue, there's the demographics issue, and there's the political issue. We get in all of them one by one. But why don't you first just talk in a general terms about what the condition is for the District of Columbia right now? What sort of voting rights do people have right now? What kind of uh, representation do they have right now with the system as it currently exists? Go ahead, Senator. Well, when D.C. residents go to the polls in November, they get to vote for offices that have U.S. senator on them. Uh, It says United States representative. We have a non-voting delegate to the House of Representatives. So the elections work the same way uh, as it appears on the ballot. But the big change is when we is after those offices are sworn in, none of us who represent Washington, D.C., who are elected by those American citizens, have any voting power in the Senate or the House of Representatives. Uh, And in the Senate, I have even less than our delegate in the House who can at least speak and debate. Uh, And it's a great injustice. Uh, We do get the right to vote for electors uh, in the presidential electoral college, but it's not based on our population. It's tied to the population of Wyoming, uh, long story, but um, we're, we're not really uh, uh, full and equal citizens. And we're full and equal citizens when it comes to the obligations, when it comes to paying taxes, serving in the military, serving in other branches of the government. You know, you got hardworking civil servants like Anthony Fauci, for example, who live in D.C. but don't have voting representation in Congress. And so Here in the United States, under our system of laws, you get rights as a citizen of the United States and you get rights as a citizen of your state. And we don't have the rights of living in a state. Uh, For us, it's mostly about self-determination and the ability to pass our own laws. 
today is 420 and uh, for no apparent reason, I'll bring up that uh, D.C. residents voted to legalize marijuana, but Congress is blocking us from implementing that law. Uh, and there's a host of other issues where we pass a law that's important to the citizens of our community. Um, but people in Congress will use their ability to block us implementing our own laws. And, and that's a real problem. Uh, and it's become a real public safety issue as well for us. What do you mean by a public safety issue? Well, for example, we only got one third of the resources allocated to states in the coronavirus release bills that were passed by the last Congress uh, because we are a territory. Um, but of course, the virus is a micropathic, a microscopic pathogen, and it did not realize that we were a territory and not a state. And so it didn't make us only one third as sick or it didn't affect only one third of the people that affected in the states. We had the same problems that any other community had, but we only got one through the resources because we were a territory and not a state. Uh, we also don't have a governor. You know, we talk about statehood a lot as it relates to having a voting senator or a voting member of the House, uh, but we don't have a governor with the powers of a governor. So when President Trump wanted to clear Black Lives Matter Plaza, which we now call it, uh, to take that now infamous photo op, he was able to call in the National Guard over the objections of our chief executive, something he couldn't do in Washington state, but could do in Washington, D.C., uh, and we had peaceful protesters attacked. More importantly, when we needed to call out the National Guard to protect us from an angry mob of white supremacists that were storming the Capitol and terrorizing our neighborhoods, uh, we needed the approval of the federal government and they were the ones actually inciting, you know, it was the, this was the riot the president himself incited. And so you, you can't really ask uh, the federal government for permission to call out your own guard troops to protect you when it's the federal government uh, causing the incitement. So it, it's really in some cases a life or death issue. It's not just political. Um, but the fairness issue should really get it done. Americans should have equal rights, whether you live, Wherever you live in the United States, you should be treated equally and you should not get uh, reduced voting rights based on your zip code. That's just wrong. All right. Well, the fairness issue is uh, thrown out the window when we get to uh, the political issue, the political ramifications of this, because I've said this many. This is me speaking, not Senator Paul Strauss. This is me speaking. When it comes to the game of politics, Republicans play to win and Democrats play to be nice. And this is an example of it. If the roles were reversed, Senator Paul Strauss, you don't have to agree with me if you don't want to, but if the roles were reversed and a Republican majority was contingent on turning D.C. into a state, that's that would have happened. Oh, boy, Mitch McConnell would have had that legislation rushing through years ago. And this is what I always tell my Democratic listeners out there. You want to play to win? You got to take some of the you got to play a little like. Republicans. You want to play to lose? Keep doing what you're doing. That's me speaking. Uh, do you have any response to any of that? Are you going to vehemently disagree with anything I just said, Senator Strauss? You know, <laughs> look, we, we, we need to get this bill passed. We need to pass it because it's the right thing to do for the people of D.C., but it's the right thing to do for the United States of America. So uh, the reasons why I and people in D.C. support it, including the Republican Party in D.C., including prominent Republicans from D.C., uh, 
is is because of the fairness. It's because of the need for self-determination. It's because uh, we need all Americans coming together to solve the problems of our country. Uh, but yeah, there are plenty of times when uh, our, our party wimps out, as it were, and, and doesn't take the steps it needs to take. Uh, look, this should not be the admission of new states should not be something that's subject to the filibuster. The framers set simple majority when they wrote that part of the Constitution that called for the admission of new states. They could have set a higher threshold. They didn't. I'm not saying we need to adopt an originalist argument, uh, but if you wanted to. Um, a simple majority to admit new states uh, is consistent with what the framers put in the Constitution. So, yeah, we should pass this bill. Absolutely. All right. Uh, let's discuss when you talk about the bill, where is the bill? Help us out a little bit. Placing the bill. Where is it in the is it has it passed the House? Is it in the Senate? Go ahead. Take it away. Well, we got two bills, H.R. 51, which is the bill in the House and S. 51, the companion bill in the Senate. Uh, just today, the Rules Committee moved forward and the, the bill is going to be voted on by the full House uh, Thursday. Uh, it cleared the committee last week. It's cleared the Rules Committee and it's going to be voted on. Uh, Thursday. We expect it to pass the House. We expect it to pass the House because one, it did already in the last election, uh, in the last session, I mean, and two, we have more co-sponsors than we need to pass it with a simple majority. So then the battle goes to the Senate. Uh, we have 45 original Senate co-sponsors to support this bill. We need 51 votes to pass the bill. And under the current Senate rules, we need 60 senators to vote to at least close debate and, and proceed, uh, allow the bill to be voted up or down. Mm -hmm. uh, and right now we've got commitments from 45 senators uh, and we need 51 yes votes and at least 10 Republicans, even if they vote against the bill, to agree to let the bill come up for a vote. Uh, so there's some heavy lifting to do in the Senate. Yeah, that's putting it mildly. Uh, let's talk about uh, some of the uh, demographic issues, the number issues uh, for a moment. So you said there were three current electors in Washington, D.C. Did I hear you correctly when you said that? We do. Uh, the, the there was an amendment passed back in the in, in 1961 that gave D.C. residents the right to vote so long as the number of electors we got didn't exceed the least populous state, which happens to currently be Wyoming. Okay, so you have three right now. Uh, if somehow or other you were to convince uh, enough Republicans, by the way, I think you only need 50 senators because Kamala Harris would be the 51st, but uh, technicality. She, uh, she would be the 51st vote, so uh, correct. We could yeah. do it with uh, our 50 Democrats and, and our Democratic vice president. Right, So, but to get past that filibuster issue, uh, you would need some Republican support. So if you were to make uh, D.C. a state, uh, how, how many electors would it then have? Well, based on the current census, we'd probably stay at three. But if we grew, it would be based on whatever our population is. So right now, there's several uh, of the smaller states that only have three electoral votes. Um, so it, nothing about D.C. stated would change the composition of the Electoral College uh, in the near future. But hopefully the city will grow. And as it grows, maybe we'll get that second congressional district. Who knows? Uh, but uh, you would definitely have an you. Let me strike that. I'm a lawyer. Uh, strike that uh, from the uh, question, Your Honor. Uh, you would have two. The state of uh, Washington would have two senators 
two voting senators. If you right. added two voting senators, hold on, I'm going to do some really complicated math. Uh, Senator Strauss, two plus 50, 52 uh, Democratic senators, which <laughs> would really irritate the Republicans because suddenly they little more in the minority than they already are. So that would be a, a big political impact, correct? Well, we would actually be able to pass more legislation instead of sending great ideas to the Senate to die, which is kind of what we do now. You know, I feel like I'm in good company as a shadow senator because uh, uh, very little legislation is actually being voted on. So it's it's hard to tell the non-voting folks from the voting folks because we're, we're just not passing that many bills at a time when the Senate needs to be moving on America's problems. All right. So now uh, very diligently read the other side, see what the other side had to say. Uh, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. The, one of the chief uh, reasons for opposing statehood has been articulated by several um, Republican constitutional scholars. Uh, and they go back to the Federalist Papers. I love how when they pick and choose from the Federalist Papers uh, when they want to win a, a modern day argument, uh, Senator Strauss. James Matterson, I think it's Federalist Paper number 43 about the nation's capital uh, needs to be distinct from a state. And so that if you were to create a new a state out of Washington, you would actually have to create uh, a, a separate entity for the federal capital and that would have electoral votes and so suddenly it would be really complicating things because i I think and i'm doing this from memory the only people who would live in this separate entity uh that would be created uh to represent the federal government would be the people who reside in the white house so this is a general this is like a practical reason for not uh allowing statehood your response to all that well one uh Madison's kind of right. And statehood doesn't eliminate a federal seat of government. It simply shrinks it to the part of the capital area that's actually federal. So the White House, the Capitol, the part where right now we have a legal political boundary called the National Capital Service Area. And if you're on the federal side of it, it's the federal government. The National Park Service mows the lawn, picks up the trash. Uh, the police officers or park police or Capitol police or White House Secret Service. So, you know, right now there is a district that is federal where the federal government provides the services. The rest of Washington, D.C. is home to over 700,000 people. And it's us local taxpayers here that pay to have the trash picked up, pay the local cops, pay the uh, uh, keep the streetlights on, et cetera. So all we do is we shrink the federal district to the part of the district that's actually federal. Not really an outrageous idea. And you would think all those right wingers that want to shrink federal bureaucracy would be behind it. Um, The 23rd amendment gives the federal district, the three electoral votes that's tied to the population of Wyoming. Uh, All we have to do is repeal that. Uh, Nobody's seriously expecting Joe Biden to try and vote twice in the next election uh, because one he's registered in Delaware and two, Um, The 23rd Amendment says the seat of government gets electors consistent with the least populous state. And two, Congress shall have the right to enforce this law with appropriate legislation. So the reason we get to vote in a presidential election is that we have a board of elections. We have people that register voters. And 
you know, it's really part two of the amendment that implements the election. The statehood bill uh, expedites repeal of the 23rd Amendment. No one is suggesting that's going to be an obstacle. Uh, we don't expect Joe Biden to try and, and get extra electoral votes if he runs in the next election. Uh, I wouldn't have put it past the last guy. But either way, th- th- there's no real mechanism um, for allowing the, the National Mall to have uh, representation in the Electoral College. And that's just sort of a, a, a distraction and a diversion. Uh, but if you want a separate contained federal seat of government, not tied to a state, admitting the surrounding part where D.C. residents now live doesn't do away with that. So it's consistent with the framers vision. Uh, so are there any Republicans who are showing any sign, uh, Senator Strauss, of supporting this initiative? I mean, I'm just off the top of my head, based on the one argument you made earlier about states' rights and that you don't have a governor, so you can't call up the National Guard, you're dependent on the federal uh, government uh, to to send in the Guard if, if you chose. I would think someone like Rand Paul, for instance, who's a big advocate, he's a, a, a Republican senator from the state of Kentucky, big advocate for states' rights. In fact, that was the argument he used on the floor of the Senate, if you recall, uh, in, ju- in justifying voting uh, for the uh, or confirming the election. It was not that he didn't believe he still kind of believed that it was, quote unquote, stolen. But he felt that from a state rights perspective, he had a vote against uh, giving the federal government too much control over the process. So I, I gave him a little credit for being consistent ideologically. I'm just wondering. Is he supporting this initiative? You think he would, as a state's right guy, be really all over this initiative? Go ahead, Senator Strong. Yeah, you'd think he would, but no, he's not. He's uh, he's not at all. And in fact, he's one of the biggest obstacles. Is that? I see. I did not know that. That was. I, I did not ask that question, thinking he'd be the one of the big. What is his argument as an in terms of opposing it? When they don't like the people that happen to live in the uh, this jurisdiction, they come up with all kinds of arguments. And so Republicans, particularly the Republicans in the House that have been opposing this latest bill, have come up with some ridiculous arguments. Uh, there was a Republican congressman from Georgia who said that we couldn't be a state because we didn't have enough car dealerships. I'm not making that up. That really <laughs> happened. Uh, one, it's false. Because we actually have car dealerships, and I say that because there's hardworking people who uh, who sell cars here, uh, and 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 you know. But two, uh, I can tell you, as you're scrubbing those Federalist Papers that Madison wrote, nowhere in the Constitution or any of those papers does it mention car dealerships as a prerequisite for stated. Um, it it's just uh, it, it it's just wrong. Look. The, uh, Every part of the United States where the population happens to be majority non-white doesn't have voting representation in Congress. So the District of Columbia is the most conspicuous because we pay full federal taxes. But you add in Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, all these other territories, you know, there's a reason beyond um, mere coincidence why they're uh, just not treated equally. And uh, D.C. statehood is an important step to beginning to address that uh, inequality. Mm. The Senate right now is a ridiculously dysfunctional institution. It was never designed to be purely democratic, but it has gotten so far away from uh, reflecting the values of actual people who live in this country that it's more distorted than it's ever been right now, you know, and I, and I'm not great at math either, but 18% of Americans have 52 senators. The 
population, if you combine them of the 26 smallest states, doesn't even reach a fifth of the United States population. And they have over half the senators. And of the Democratic senators versus the Republican senators, the 50 Democratic senators represent 41 million more Americans uh, than the 50 Republicans. And so on pure numbers, regardless of it's a blue state or a red state, uh, the, the Senate a majority of the senators represent 18% of Americans and the half of the senators that happen to be democratic represent 41 million more people. And so it, it is the ultimate example of minority rule. And it, we can either scrap the whole system, which is going to be very constitutionally difficult to do given how ingrained it is. At a minimum, we can begin to admit some of these places and add a little bit of diversity so that at least the Senate will have some representation from communities that have been historically underrepresented in that body. Yeah, that was well done. And that's a powerful point that you just made. 18% of America has 52 senators. Uh, Our system is really out of whack, but it's benefiting one particular party. And uh, my humble opinion, that is why that party is fighting so hard. Uh, to keep the District of Columbia uh, from becoming a separate state. It's the political issue, ultimately. That can concoct any old uh, constitution. That's that's why you hire lawyers. No offense, Senator Strauss. You hire a lawyer to make an argument. You get what I'm saying? That's why you... you yeah, know, well... I, I mean, that's, that's what they're there for. Uh, all right, now let me ask you this. This is... this The issue of D.C. statehood has not really spread, I think, Uh, as much as it should, to Democratic uh, voters, progressive activists. I want to facilitate that spread a little bit here in Chicago. We have a lot of hardworking activists in the city of Chicago that would champion this and join the the cause. So a very practical question. To get around the filibuster, uh, they would need to make some kind of ruling uh, a Senator Strauss that would, would make a parliamentary ruling. We saw this happen already where they would need some kind of justification to get around a filibuster on this. Do you see any initiative like that coming uh, in the, this current political climate? Well, I mean, I hope so. There's certainly a compelling argument that at least when it comes to the admission of new states, the filibuster is inappropriate. And remember, the framers, these same uh, white folks, the the slave owners that wanted to be free, whatever you want to call them, you know, they set supermajority as the threshold to remove a president from office following an impeachment. They set supermajority as the threshold to recommend an amendment to the state legislatures as part of the amendment process. But when it came to the section of the Constitution where we talked about admitting new states, they themselves picked simple majority. And so if you're requiring a filibuster uh, or a higher number than that, you're really going against their original intent. Procedurally, even though it takes 60 60 votes to close debate and proceed to a vote, these rules that set that 60 vote threshold up are set by a majority vote, which is where the irony comes in. And so when Harry Reid needed to get federal judges through, uh, they used a 51 vote majority to change the 60 vote threshold. When the Republicans came in and amended that 
to include all federal judges. They did so with a 51 vote majority. And so we can admit new states with a 51 vote majority, uh, take 51 votes to amend the rules, take 51 votes to admit D.C. You've got the 51st state. So, you know, just keep thinking the number 51, 51 for 51. uh, And there you go. It's done. And I think we can do that based on the constitutional precedent without necessarily making a lasting decision on whether the filibuster goes or stays. Uh, There's certainly compelling arguments to get rid of it. Um, But, you know, we we can treat the admission of new states without doing away with the entire filibuster if that's what's important to you. Uh, I, I know that there's senators like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema that seem awfully wedded to the concept of a filibuster. Uh, I disagree with them on that, but uh, let's not say DC statehood shouldn't be about keeping or getting rid of the filibuster in its entirety. Uh, It's not only a reasonable exception to the rule. It's one deeply rooted in the uh, founding father's original document, the constitution itself. All right. Uh, Final question before uh, we let you go and bring on our next guest. Uh, Susanna Mendoza has a, Uh, joined us and she's ready to come on. Uh, Is there any uh, website that people can go to from Chicago? Again, we have a lot of progressives in this city. A lot of lefties in the city would like to get involved in this. Go ahead. Yeah, go to, go to, go to statehood.dc.gov. And remember, if you're not advocating for DC statehood, but you're advocating for some progressive issue at the national level, you're not advocating for that issue because without DC getting into the union, there's not going to be anybody who is, uh, able to fight for the type of interest that uh, you want. So whether it's uh, uh, police reform, whether it's climate change uh, uh, action, whether it's uh, economic justice, you name the issue. Uh, right now, every bill that the House passes that makes progress on that issue will die in the United States Senate unless we can at least get two more senators uh, to move on it. And the senators, the people of Washington, D.C. are ready to step up and take their place and help move this country forward. All right. Very good. Thank you so much, Senator Paul Strauss. Appreciate it. I hope my listeners uh, join the cause. Uh, we're going to uh, let uh, Senator Strauss move on with his day and take a break. Bring on Comptroller Susanna Mendoza in a bit for the longest time. Uh, it seemed like the longest time ever when uh, Bruce Rauner uh, was governor of the state. Heck of a job, Illinois voters, in electing him. I was searching for any ally I could find, political ally, to take a strong stand uh, against Bruce Rauner, to stand up to him. He was trying to destroy union rights in the state of Illinois. He was blackmailing uh, the, the people of Illinois into accepting his hardcore anti-union legislation in the hopes that if they accepted that legislation, he would pass a budget. So it was like not-for-profit groups were losing funding and they were threatened, their good services were threatened because Rauner wanted to twist the arms of the Democratic legislators uh, in the House and the Senate into passing uh, his anti-union uh, legislation. I was looking for any ally I, I could find, and I found a good one in Susanna Mendoza. She was the controller. And it's kind of funny because Susanna and I don't come from the same uh, political background. You know, I'm like a lefty from Evanston, and uh, she's pretty much was uh, came up the uh, the ladder as a Democratic regular in the southwest side of Chicago. But what an ally she was! Uh, the Mendoza report, right? Let's do one Mendoza report before we bring her on, just for old times' sake. 
It's back. It's better than ever. <laughs> it's the Mendoza Report. It's awesome every time. <laughs> Thank you. What's what's going on, Susanna? Uh, hey, uh, Dennis, you just were like music to my ears, my man. Oh, Thank you. And, and Ben, it's so nice to hear your voice. Like we're you're talking to me instead of just hearing your voice. But that's great too, by the way. Yes. Um, anyway, Susanna Mendoza, I got a bunch of things, you know, to sort of controller, state controller things. I want to ask you about uh, the state of the budget. Uh, I saw the story and I forget which newspaper it was about uh, judges suing for a raise. I thought they didn't want to take. Then there's the issue of um, what are we going to do with the salary for uh, Michael Joseph Madigan's replacement on the south- southwest side. But just in general, haven't talked to you in a while, Susanna Mendoza. How you view in the world? How you view in the political landscape in the state of Illinois uh, and uh, the country as a whole? When you were first started coming on the show, as I said, it was dire times with Bruce Rauner. And are you a little more optimistic now? Do you feel a little better about where we're heading as a state and as a country? Go ahead. Well, definitely as a state. I mean, I feel that obviously we have a ton of issues and many problems, but um, I think the worst experience that I've had in elected office was navigating us through that fiscal crisis because not of you know, like a pandemic or some other, you know, national financial crisis. But in fact, because while every single other state in our country was taking advantage of the best bull market of our lifetime, we had a Republican governor who was hell bent on destroying Illinois finances. And, and instead of like doing what everybody else did, which was, you know, uh, ride the market and, pad our rainy day fund and, you know, invest in the things that we care about, like higher education and, and other education programs and uh, job creation. What he did was, in fact, as you mentioned uh, before I started talking here, was destroy our financial uh, picture. We, we, he earned eight credit downgrades in two years. He took us to the brink of junk bond status. Again, whenever everybody else was doing great financially. So, that was the most challenging thing I've ever done, especially having to to counter that that you know uh, that mission that he was on to destroy our financial uh, outlook. So yeah, it's been tough. Um, anything besides Bruce Rauner is always going to be a little bit easier. And I would say that when the pandemic hit, and once again, you know, every state in the country for the first time now, every state in the country was like really feeling uh, scared from a financial perspective here in Illinois, I was kind of like, well, if I could say there any silver lining to the Bruce Rauner saga was that I gained a level of experience that no other financial officer in the state in any other state had. And I know how to navigate us through crisis. Just uh, over the last three weeks, we've gone from a negative outlook with standard and pours and uh, bitch to a, uh, to a stable outlook in the middle of a global pandemic. So I'd say that uh, I certainly learned a lot over that terrible Bruce Rauner uh, wreckage period, and uh, we've come out the stronger for it. What is the state of uh, Illinois finances at, uh, at the moment, uh, Susanna? Uh, are we, what kind of deficit are we facing? So we have, besides, of course, the, the, the looming, the big issue is, of course, the unfunded pension uh, obligations, right? They're, that's just gigantic. But in the nuts and bolts of what I get to uh, manage every day, 
Um, to give you a point of comparison, we were at about $16.7 billion at the height of the, the Rauner uh, years in bills that had yet to be paid for services that had already rendered. We call that the bill backlog. $16.7 billion, the worst of any state in the country. And over the last few years that I've been controller, I've managed to bring that down to about $5 billion today. Um, it got as low as about four point eight. We also, though, had to incur significant borrowing from the Federal Reserve during the uh, pandemic to, just to get us through the pandemic, because as you know, and you've reported many times, you know, it really hurt people. Uh, a lot of people lost their jobs, uh, a lot of entertainment and hospitality. The industry essentially dried up for quite a while. Um, we were not seeing the revenues come into the state that we needed to pay our bills. So we had no other choice but to go to the Federal Reserve and take advantage of what for us was a good deal. They were below market rates for the state of Illinois if we borrowed from the Federal Reserve. So we did that. I borrowed about $2 billion uh, most recently from them and turned that into closer to $3.5 billion because we targeted bills, medical bills in the middle of this pandemic that would also give us a federal match, right? So for every dollar I spend there, I get 56 cents back from the government, so from the Fed. So we turned that two into closer to three and a half. And you've probably heard me say a million times over uh, that now that we have seven and a half billion dollars coming to us from the federal stimulus package, um, we are going to target that money to pay down all of the borrowing that we had to do to chip away at the bill backlog for whatever's eligible uh, for that COVID relief funding and also hopefully target um, a small amount of that, but a significant um, mm-hmm. uh, amount to helping small businesses that have been really hurt during the pandemic get people back to work and uh, energize our economy a little bit. So that's where we're at today. I kind of give you a big snap, a, a big summary, and and what the shortest snapshot I could. Uh, by the way, uh, at at some point, I can't remember when in the middle of the pandemic, uh, Suzanne, I've lost track of time. Uh, Don Harmon, who is the Senate president, the Democrat who runs the Senate, uh, suggested that we use some of our federal uh, stimulus money or federal COVID relief money to uh, pay down the um, uh, our, our pension ish- our liability. He was immediately reamed by the editorial boards, I think, of both newspapers and all the good-minded civic leaders of Chicago and corporate Chicago. Uh, I'm not uh, in agreement with Don Harmon these days on elected school board issues, Susanna, but I was like, yeah, finally, a Democrat that <laughs> thinking like a Republican. That's what you do. You got a liability, a state liability, get some help from the federal government, pay down the pensions, preserve our pensions for our police officers. I thought the Republicans were law and order. Don't you think they would want to preserve the pensions for police officers and firefighters, et cetera, and so forth? Susanna Mendoza. So is there, of course, like I said, all the good government folks in the state of Illinois turned against it. I don't know what your position on this is. No, I don't think it was helpful for him to do that letter. And I think that it fed into this whole idea that Illinois was asking for a bailout. Um, to pay these obligations that the state should have been paying for years, right? I mean, it's not the pensioners' fault that their pensions were essentially raided. And, um, and you know, if you're going to borrow money from pensions, then you should immediately pay it back. This is why I've been so vocal about any money that we borrow, period, from whoever we borrow it from. We need to pay it back right away. And, you know, I've gotten really good at managing debt. You know, people say, oh, how's your cash management? 
like, well, I'm really awesome at debt management because we don't have these extra cash flows that other states have. We don't have a rainy day fund. But asking the federal government without even consulting with anyone else, right, about, hey, give us 40 or $45 billion to, um, to pay for the mistakes of the past is also not the right approach because you're asking other taxpayers to pay for the mistakes that Illinois made, right? And so as much as, of course, I would love to see those pensions funded properly, um, that's our obligation to figure out how we do that. And I think that had the fair tax passed, it would have been nice to see a significant percentage of that money go towards paying above and beyond the statutory mandated, statutorily mandated minimum payments on those pensions. And I think that that's what the markets want to see, Ben. They just want to see that there's a plan besides just kicking the can down the road. And uh, yeah, so okay. no, I, I don't think Democrats or Republicans, believe it or not, were thought that that letter asking for 40 billion plus uh, in, in bailout was appropriate. And that would have, in fact, been a bailout, whereas we're not asking for a bailout. We're asking for help like every other 49 states along with us uh, deserve to get as a result of these lost revenues because of the pandemic. Uh, by the way, that was very, very good counterpunch. You gave me uh, Susanna Mendoza, and I'm just going to point out that's the difference between uh, a, a state elected official, a controller, and the host of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Harmon finally came up with one good idea. Then it wasn't a counterpunch. It was like a love tap. Okay. <laughs> Bruce Rauder gets the counterpunches. Oh, I get the, the love taps. And the kick to the groin. Yeah, the whole thing. I gave, I gave him the whole arsenal of Mendoza power. Yes, she did. But uh, poor Don Harmon just got decimated, too. Come on, Don. It wasn't that bad. I love Don Harmon. I think Don's a great guy. I just do think that 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 actually created just some, I think, unintended headaches uh, for folks like me to have to deal with. Right. The the whole narrative has been like, this is not a bailout. It's not a bailout. It's not a bailout. Uh, But asking for 40 plus billion to pay pension certainly would have been a bailout by definition, you know. All right, we'll let it go. We'll let it go. It's the one time I agree with Don Harmon. We'll just let it go and move on to a, a other thing. <laughs> Look, if some crazy wealthy billionaire would just like to donate the money, we'll take it, right? I <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By the way, speaking of which, I didn't. I haven't talked to you about long so long. They. Um, uh, I was t- uh, Rob Markwick's uh, bill uh, to uh, regarding uh, firefighter pensions. Did you have a position on that? Uh, no, I didn't. I did not take a position on it. Kind of not something that would go before me. I got it. Well, I took a position on that too. I was with Marwick. I'm going to tell you something, Susanna, if you ever leave politics and host a podcast, you got to have positions on everything. Okay. That just goes with, uh, you have to have a position. I don't have a podcast. Yeah. Uh, All right. Let's talk a little about those judges. I saw that story. I think it was in the Tribune. Uh, I guess you have a position on that, pal. Okay, take it away. Tell us, tell folks what's going on there. Yeah, so we have these, um, so many years ago, you know, I remind, remind, I'll remind folks that I used to also be in the state legislature, right, um, mm-hmm. before I ran for city clerk and then became controller. So I used to be a rank and file legislator, and there were many times where year after year we would have to vote on whether or not we would accept our COLA, mm-hmm. which is the cost of living adjustment. It's, you know, a small raise, but whatever, it's significant over time. And so um, these cost of living adjustments would have to be voted on. And the members, both in the House and the Senate, would vote, what, uh, yes, I want to take the COLA, or no, I'm going to reject the COLA. 
So year after year after year, we always voted to not accept the COLAs. I co-sponsored the bill one year. Many people did. Um, I thought it was always the right thing to do. Um, and the kicker here is that there were two uh, former state senators. They were state senators at the time, of course. And every year, these guys were voting down the pay raise. Um, and not only did they just vote down the pay raise, but they would get up and talk on the Senate floor about how noble they were to do this, how this was such the right thing to do, and how you know they thumped their chest with pride and and then after they voted no on the pay raise, mm-hmm. they would utilize their no votes. Um, and they were the two people that the two names that should live on for infamy are um, current King County Judge Michael Nolan, and the other one is uh, former Senator James Claber. They were both senators. Now one of them, unfortunately, is a sitting judge. Having said that, when they were in the legislature, they always voted this down. And then they did. They were the two names that were listed on the Senate Democrats, um, Senate Democrats at press release about mm-hmm. what a great noble thing this was to do. And so, um, fast forward, they're no longer in office. Well, Michael Nolan was no longer in office. He turns around after having again pontificated about how great this was to vote the pay raise down. He turns around and sues me. Now I'm the controller for the state of Illinois. I get sued because he wants his money back. Because according to the lawyer senator, because not only was he a senator, he was a lawyer. Um, this lawyer senator somehow uh, now wants his money back because he said it was unconstitutional for him to vote against taking his pay raise. I mean, it really is the height of hypocrisy. Just when you think like politicians can't actually get worse and people can't hate us anymore, um, you know, shameless scripters like Michael Nolan come around and remind us of why everybody hates us. And so he turns around and sues me. He wants all his money back. He wants it back on behalf of all the state reps or senators that were ever aggrieved. And a judge rules that he has no standing because he's no longer in the legislature. Enter Senator, at the time, still current senator, but who had announced his pending resignation, um, James Claiborne. So he was still in the legislature. So he signed on to the lawsuit, which gave it standing. And it's now been litigated for about four years. Uh, and about maybe a week and a half ago or so on Thursday, we lost in court. And the judge says that, you know, they he's granting relief, which means that the controller's office has to pay these guys for a total of, I think it's $167,000. Uh, now, mind you, I'm going to appeal because I'm going to fight this every step of the way on behalf of taxpayers. But it's just, you know, it's another reason, again, Ben, honestly, it's literally why people hate our guts. And there's, you know, $167,000 certainly is not going to, um, me having to pay them that, it's not going to, uh, if if I got to keep it for the people of Illinois, it wouldn't solve our budget deficit, but it clearly exponentially increases the deficit of trust that exists amongst people and po- politics, right? And so, yeah, it really makes me sick to my stomach. Um, uh, these guys, in my mind, have no shame, and they're just like the example of hypocrisy, you know, on two feet. And it's uh, what party are they from? They're Democrats, unfortunately. I'm embarrassed mm-hmm. to say so. It's just yeah. really pathetic. And, you know, I think like you, sh- I can't imagine you're happy that they're doing this. And no. it's um, it's really embarrassing. Like, I, I wish it was not our party that was doing this. Unfortunately, he's, they're, I don't, I disown them as yeah. them. Well, I, yeah, yeah, no, it, um, 
I mean, in contrast uh, to what Harmon, going back to the Harmon thing, that was a political maneuver. Uh, able, call, I'll call it a bailout. I don't care. Uh, uh, that would give a great relief uh, to taxpayers in Illinois by having uh, their liability spread throughout the country. Okay. Now, if I lived in Wyoming, I may have a different view of it, but I don't live in Wyoming. All right. Now, going back to these two, that's just hypocrisy. And you know, it'd be because part of the stand that they took for all those years that so many politicians took, uh, Susanna. Oh, I, I heard this in the city council all the time, too. I'm not going to take my raise because I don't want to burden the taxpayers. You know what I'm saying? And and then they sort of like shame. Like there could be a legislator who this is his or her only job. Do you follow sure. me, Susanna? They need the money. Yeah. And so they're shamed. Uh, Jamie Andrade in the northwest side of Chicago. We don't agree on absolutely everything politically, but this was his job, Susanna. You know what I'm saying? Is he drove an Uber. Uh, remember when? And so then you're going to flip the switch at the end. And all of a sudden you want your money, you want to cash out. No, I'm, I'm with you on this one. So, yeah, no, it was. And again, these aren't even like two silent votes, right? They're not like guys that, that um, just took a vote that they knew they didn't really want to take, um, but, you know, felt pressured into it. I mean, these were the guys who led the charge on it. One of them was a co-sponsor of the bill. The other guy, both of them were the two Democrats that the Senate picked to be the guys on the press release, right? They used it to get reelected in all their mail pieces. I mean, it was just the the just the shadiest, nastiest uh, thing that I think an elected official um, in their position could have done. And and it's um, again, it's another reason why people genuinely dislike us. Yeah. And we all get painted with that broad brush of being grifters like those guys. And and I I just have zero respect for them. I. Uh, the things I've said are like the nicest things that I can say without being banned. Right. <laughs> um, and, um, and, you know, I pull no punches, but I just really do think it's so shameful. I don't know how they sleep at night. I, you know, I'd really be embarrassed to be related to them. Um, but it is what it is. And, uh, and the good news though, if there is any silver lining here is that the judge ruled that only those two are to get relief. So uh, they did. He did not extend it to the entirety of the legislature mm -hmm. that would have cost us millions of dollars. I think we've done the math and it's like 13 to 14 million dollars at a time when we don't have any money, Ben. I mean, like, yeah, I brought the bill backlog down to five billion or so, but we still have three billion to pay back in borrowing. So it's really closer to eight or nine billion. And um, and people are still hurting in this state that actually do work hard for a living and deserve their money before I have to pay it out to legislators that voted down pay raises and now want their money back. You Absolutely. Know? So and, and, really and not only that, and not only Susanna, you know this as well as I do. We're facing some serious issues, uh, decisions, because the fair tax, as you alluded to earlier, went down. And yeah. so uh, Gov uh, Governor Pritzker was uh, part of his budget being balanced was predicated on that money. And so now where where's the substitute money coming in? Uh, and we're really searching. So old boy Nolan and Clyborne, they're not around to do the heavy lifting on any vote. You know what I'm saying? They, they're just cashing up. Yeah, um, and, it, and, it, and it's not like they're poor, you know? I mean, you, you mentioned Jamie Andrade. He's got a family and he was out there riding an Uber, you know, and doing what he needed to do to take care of his family when he wasn't getting paid, right? But 
that's very different than this scenario where these guys are both lawyers. Both of these guys were lawyers, which again makes it worse. So they knew exactly what they were doing from a constitutional perspective, you know? And um, they're both lawyers. They both make a, a lot of money on their own in private sector. Uh, Judge Noland is now again, you know, uh, I won't say he's earning, but he's taking 200000 or so a year in salary from taxpayers for doing God knows what, uh, because clearly his judgment is one that I would question. Um, so, yeah, it's just an unfortunate uh, circumstance here that we continue to have to litigate. Um, but I'm certainly not quick to write them their checks. So they're going to have to wait for it. And we're going to keep fighting in court. And hopefully we'll find a judge that feels that that level of hypocrisy. I think we make good legal arguments as to like statute of limitations have passed and and other legal arguments that we'll be appealing on. But it it is very frustrating. I feel like common sense is, is missing so much in a lot of what happens here in politics. All right, let's get down to what's going on uh, on the southwest side. Uh, with the, the the pay the salaries of legislators uh, who at one point or another succeeded uh, Michael Joseph Madigan, who of course uh, stepped down as a state rep after I, I forget it's 1971. I want to say Susanna, don't quote me. I think that's how long he. No, it is. You know why I know this because I was born in 72. So I was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was already a state rep when yeah, Susanna Mendoza was born. I was born. Uh, so all right, this one was so convoluted. The young man who, uh, this let's just pause to think about this, Susanna. Michael Joseph Madigan served for 50 years as a state rep. He steps down, okay, after the Commonwealth Edison thing. He says, you know, I'm stepping down. I can't be speaker anymore. I'm stepping down. Fine. The kid they named to replace him was in office, I think, for three days. Like two and a half days. So he two got <laughs> That's unbelievable. Wait, it's like he, feast he or famine on the on Southwest Sunday. side. So he got sworn in on Sunday and then on Tuesday he resigned. Yes. Yeah. All right. So we talked about this a lot in the show. He got, uh, there was this, nobody specified what the, the outrage or scandal was, but there was something that he was just, he had, he had to step down because it would have been a real embarrassment for him to continue when it's all right. He steps down. So he's replaced. Talk about, how, who's getting how much money for how many days served uh, replacing the man who served for 50 years? Take us away in this one, Susanna. Yeah. So under current law, um, it's really interesting. It's not in a good way either, by the way. But uh, under current law, uh, any legislator who serves upon serving is eligible for a full month salary. And that means whether it's one day or 30 days or 31 days, or I guess 28 if it's February, right? So they get the full month, even if they've only served the one day. So in this case, because you had sent, um, I should say Speaker Madigan, who had already, I think he resigned probably around the 18th or so, or the 16th, I don't remember exactly, but it was past the halfway mark. Even if it had only been one day, he'd get paid the whole month. But, you know, at least that guy put in, you know, past two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he resigns, so he gets his full month, and nobody would have blinked an eye at that because, you know, it seems like normal at that point. But then enter Representative Kodat, who took his place. He was appointed on Sunday, and by Tuesday he had resigned, yet he was eligible for a full month's pay as well, which would have come out to about $6,000, just a little bit under that. Mm-hmm. And And then the worst part is that, as you mentioned, this guy did something, I don't know what, uh, but he, whatever it was, it was enough to have him resign on that Tuesday. 
And then on Thursday, they appointed his successor. So now there's three representatives in the same month. And by law, they're all eligible to, for a full month's pay. Now, that is just a really unique but screwed up um, thing. And it's a perfect example of why we need to change the law. Now, for the last couple of years, I've been trying to pass a law that we call our no exit bonus. But now I'm going to call it our no exit or no signing bonus. Um, and in the past, uh, the reason why we brought this legislation forward is because, you know, last year and the year before that, we saw a few representatives or senators have to resign in disgrace, right? We had Nick Sauer on the Republican side who um, is under investigation right now, under criminal charges, actually, for um, uh, sexual uh, crimes, um, sexual Internet crimes, I believe. And um, he resigned and he got paid for his full month plus the the next month even because he he dated his uh resignation for the first of the month um and then you had martin sandoval who this was the most egregious of all the cases this guy um he resigned officially he made his official resignation in november he sent us a letter uh you know time stamped and everything as of november 26th i believe the date was and he but he made his resignation official in that letter as of January 1st. So by law, we had to pay this guy for November, December, and January. And on top of that, then pay whoever his replacement was. You see, so like in the month of January, we would have had two, two um, full paychecks, him and the replacement. But the guy never worked past mm -hmm. November 26th. You see my point? He like yep. left and was never to be seen again. So he essentially got three months for free um, from taxpayers, which is so wrong. Um, and then uh, after that, we had also representative and both he and Marty, unfortunately, were Democrats. Um, uh, and that was uh, Lisa Arroyo, who resigned in disgrace as well under federal investigation. And he um, he also made his resignation effective the first of the following month. So he got paid for the month that he uh, announced it and then the following month. And so this is just like a total abuse of taxpayers. And it was timed to just get an extra month for free, but even though you're not working. So I wanted to change the law to prorate pay. So if the legislator resigns at any point in their term, they will get paid up until their date that they leave, right? So if you if you uh, leave on the 18th of the month, you only get paid through the 18th of the month. And then your successor, if they get appointed on the 19th or on the 23rd, they get appointed on the 23rd, that's when they start getting paid. It's just a prorated basis. And mm -hmm. It just makes sense, right? We're trying to protect every tax dollar and every dollar counts, especially when you're in the billions and the negative, right? So again, I just think it's about fairness. What other place of employment do you know that we would be uh, paying someone uh, for 30 days worth of work for one or two days worth of service? And I, I mean, most people that we fight for don't have that those type of luxury jobs. And and in this case, you know, I would have been on the hook, not me personally, but taxpayers, right? Mm -hmm. I'd pay those bills on their behalf for three salaries for people that didn't even work 30 days, all three of them together, right? Yeah. So it's really pathetic. And I I uh, took an approach here, given that we have legislation pending to fix this issue, um, to ask both Representative Kodat and then his successor, which is uh, Representative Angie uh, guerrero Cuellar. Mm -hmm. um, if they would do the right thing and fill out a waiver so that they could um, sign a waiver saying that they refused to take the money, right? And that mm -hmm. they would just get paid starting 
Well, he wouldn't get paid, period, because he only served like two days, really, right? And then, or a day and a half, technically, that Monday and Tuesday that he resigned. And then she was sworn in on Thursday at the end of February. So literally, it was Thursday that she was sworn in Friday. Then you get into the weekend, and on Monday's a new pay period. So that is a pretty awesome privilege to get appointed to this position. Um, could you, you know, essentially say, I'm not going to take 30 months pay for two days worth of work or literally two days worth of being a state rep, not even necessarily work. Um, and just start off on the right foot. You know, that's what we were hoping that both of them would sign those waivers. Mm -hmm. Um, to his credit, representative Kodat did, he did sign the waiver, not taking the pay. Um, but unfortunately the same cannot be said for the successor. So Mm -hmm. taxpayers were on the hook for both of those salaries that, for Speaker Madigan's as well as um, the last successor who literally served two days or mm-hmm. three three days total if you include the weekend. Um, oh, that, um, and, and that's yeah, so kind of a bummer. You know, I was really hoping that she would just do what I thought was a really easy and right thing to do, but it is Illinois. By the way, you misspoke just briefly. It was 30 days, not 30 months, but a point, point well, well taken. 30 days. Yes, yeah. 30 days. Uh, and, uh, so, yeah, I'm a little disappointed in her. She uh, was brought in, and um, it would have been the right thing to do. And, uh, it would have been so easy and a slam dunk, right? And and honestly, if if it would have been me, I would have said, yeah, of course, I won't take this money. And not only that, I'll sign on as a co-sponsor of that legislation because we need to change this process, right? So but, where is uh, the legislation? Is it uh, pending? So it's going to be folded into the broader ethics bill package. So obviously that's like a big priority for both um I think that Republicans clearly are making a lot of noise about it and the Democrats are going to have to move a significant ethics package uh, forward. And this is a a pretty popular bill now with both Dems and Republicans. So they want to include it in the overall package. Uh, Ethics in the state of Illinois. Some would say that's a contradiction in terms. All right. Uh, Given the time, it's necessary to do something. So absolutely. All right, Susanna, uh, before I let you go to talk about things happening in Chicago, uh, folks, remember Susanna ran uh, for mayor. I think the last time we did a show was shortly after the mayor's race. Susanna, we talked about the run for mayor, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, You must have some thoughts about uh, the Adam Toledo uh, shooting that took place. Uh, in, in, I think it was your old district, if I, or very close to where you're, you're, uh, Susanna started off. She was a state rep, as she mentioned, uh, years ago on the Southwest side of Chicago. What are your sort of general thoughts, uh, when you, um, consider what has been going down with Adam Toledo? Go ahead. You know, I, I think it's, it's very sad. There's so much that goes through my mind, Ben, because, um, I lived in that neighborhood. Um, I was born in little village, uh, I was, I felt as a little kid who was like seven going on eight that we were run out of our neighborhood. You've heard me tell this story before because of the gang violence, which is, was so prevalent and continues to be today. Uh, there was somebody that was literally murdered outside our door and my mom and dad just were scared for our lives. Right. And so I remember what it was like to walk to school afraid of getting shot or getting hurt. And um, so that's a very real thing. It was a real thing for me as a kid continues to be a real thing for lots of kids in those communities that are continuously, you know, being lured by, by gang members. And, um, and that's not a good thing. I think we need to acknowledge that a lot of families do live somewhat terrorized. I mean, I think I told you the story when I was a little kid, I wasn't allowed to ever play outside of my house. I can only play in my backyard. And that was because my parents legitimately worried about us getting shot. 
And, um, and when I moved, when my parents moved us out of the neighborhood, when I was, um, like I said, seven going on eight, I was in second grade. Um, I wasn't allowed to play outside of my house in Woodridge, Illinois, which literally felt like Pleasantville all of a sudden, right? Um, for a whole year, my mom, I truly believe had like PTSD and she just couldn't understand that we were okay to walk to school over there. And after a year, things calmed down and I learned what it was like to play outside and, and get to have like what normal childhood experiences should be. But, but there's, you know, it's just not a normal childhood experience. I've lived both. I lived one where I couldn't play outside because I was afraid of getting shot and one where I could, and I never worried about getting shot. Maybe I could get pooped on by a bird or something, but that was like the extent of it. So, you know, when I graduated from college, I chose, I made a conscious choice to move back to Little Village. And I, I could have just stayed out in the burbs and had a cushy life, but I moved back to Little Village to try to make a difference there and get involved with kids and, you know, understand how important it is to invest in preventative programs and in social service programs. And you see how I prioritize that every day as controller so that we can get these kids to pick up a book instead of a gun. Uh, and give them options and give parents supports that would help them to, you know, if, if they can't just do it on their own. But but unfortunately, we lose too many kids to gangs all the time. And this shooting specific to Adam Toledo, it literally happened two blocks from where I used to live, where I moved back as um, a college graduate to Little Village. I used to live on the 2600 block of South Sawyer. And this happened on the 2400 block of South Sawyer. So I can picture it perfectly in my mind. So you know, it's absolutely tragic. There are no winners in this scenario. Um, you know, the police officer, and I know people might get mad at me for saying this, but I feel like it was a split second decision. He was responding to what were shots fired and it's dark, you're in an alley. And, you know, do, do I believe that in that split second when he saw the gun on, on in the right hand and the kid was turning, did he see him drop the gun? I don't believe he did. And that, you know, there are people who believe the complete opposite. And I understand that, right? Because there's so much distrust. But I also think that we just need to do more, all of us. Um, I'm doing everything I can to expedite payments to social service providers, to um, re-entry programs, right? So that when these kids do take a wrong path, because a lot of them are kids and they get involved in these gangs and they're just, they're ruthless mm -hmm. um, and they make bad decisions. You know, like think about the stupid decisions a lot of us would have made when we were teenagers and in, in neighborhoods that are, that are gang infested, a lot of those decisions end up leading you towards a dark alley or, or a tombstone. And we've lost too many kicks to gang violence. We've lost, um, you know, there is a, a lack of trust that exists between our, police department and our, our youth and, and not just the youth adults too. Right. So, I mean, look at what we're, we're experiencing, not just in Chicago, but across the country. We, in this last year, we've seen what uh, George Floyd, we've seen Breonna Taylor, we've seen, um, you know, the pandemic, the invasion of the Capitol uh, just recently, Adam Toledo. And since then there's been a two-year-old who was shot and there was a, a woman, a 17 year old, not a woman, a 17 year old girl was shot in the head right there in Little Village again. So, you know, I think that swinging a pendulum, you know, too far on one side in either direction is bad. We need to acknowledge that gangs are a scourge in our society. We also need to try to keep kids away from gangs and give them better alternatives. And we also need to hold police accountable. I also, though, just will say that I, I, I do think that, you know, it, it's just... 
I, I can't jump on the bandwagon of, of condemning the police in this one specific shooting because I do think it's just too hard to, to know what exactly was happening in that split nanosecond. And I, I believe that the police officer did the best he could in that moment and then tried to save that kid, but it was just too late. And it's not like the Matrix where you could like slow everything down and then like get in front of that bullet once he saw his hands up. Um, I wish it was like that, but it's just in real life, that's just not how it is. So, look, there's just, like I said, no winners here. It sucks across the board for everyone. Most importantly, that kid's no longer with us. His family is going to be mourning him for the rest of their lives. And a community is once again just reminded of, of that things are not where they need to be. We need to do better. And uh, there's just no easy solution to this. No, Suzanne, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you, you were, you ran for mayor and at moments like this, do you, do you think like, Oh, what, what I, Susanna Mendoza would do if I were mayor Mendoza, or do you think, Oh my God, thank God I lost and I don't have to deal with this. Well, I think you know me well enough to know that I, I love to be in the front and in the thick of things and that I don't shy away from, from taking on strong challenges. That's why I ran. Um, but you know, uh, people made a different choice and I totally respect that. And, and I am fully focused in being controller and, you know, not, not trying to Monday morning quarterback everybody else, or, um, you know, you just go crazy. You drive yourself nuts. I mean, there are times where not because of the challenges that the city has, do I think that, um, you know, I'm glad I didn't win. No, it's, it's really on the personal side and we didn't really dive into this, but, on the election night, I think I told you, Ben, when this happened on election night, the night mm-hmm. that the results had just started to come in, um, I was in the room like every other candidate is awaiting the results with my team. And um, and I got a call from my brother's doctor, and who's our family doctor. And I thought he, he was maybe calling to wish me good luck. But in fact, he left me a voicemail saying that it was an emergency and I needed to call him. And I called him and he said, my brother, Joaquin, who is a police officer as well, um, was in the hospital and that it was very, very serious and that he might lose his leg. He had a blood infection um, and uh, it was just terrible. It was the scariest moment. So I literally just told my staff, I looked at the numbers and it was early enough. I knew that I wasn't going to make it. And I said, I just need to go give my concession speech and I have to get over to Northwestern. And then I spent the next three weeks every day working out of the hospital thinking he was going to die. But thankfully they were able to save him and save his leg. But, um, but, you know, fast forward a year, I guess a few years later, um, during COVID, you know, I'm of course in the middle of the thick of it, trying to get all these payments out the door expedited and make sure that we're able to secure the PPE that we need um, and all this stuff. And then I called my brother on November 11th to wish him a happy birthday and he had a cough. And uh, I got worried, of course, mm-hmm. this is just November of last year. And um, two days later, like a day and a half later at 630 in the morning, I get a call from the police department that he's being rushed to Northwestern in respiratory distress. And he did have COVID and it completely killed his kidneys. It um, He'll be on dialysis for the rest of his life. He spent 41 days in the hospital. And, um, and then when they released him. He spent a, a month more in the inpatient rehab. And then they discharged him to my care. We had to move him out of his apartment. Um, he's in no condition to be living on his own right now. And uh, obviously he's on medical leave from the department, his job. And he had five mini strokes because of the COVID, Ben. And 
and it was brutal. So honestly, like when I tell you that, um, you know, from a personal perspective, how would I have been able to um, be the mayor? I still would have done it, but I would have had to move out of my home because I live with my 85 year old diabetic mother who's as high risk as they come. And I probably would have not been able to see my family because I would have protected them from COVID. As the mayor, you have to be out there front and center. And I would have done that because that's what you signed up for when you take on a job like that. And I wouldn't have been able to care for my family. And, and I've, my husband and I have essentially become my husband, my brother's primary caregivers, um, being that he's not married and requires significant care right now. So yeah, look, I mean, there's been a lot of things. I look at everything that's happened in this year. I mentioned, you know, the George Floyd case, which we're about to potentially have Mm -hmm. a verdict Mm -hmm. here. And, um, and, you know, we just talked about Adam Toledo and, you know, that's a bigger issue. Um, there's unfortunately going to be more Adams, unfortunately, yeah. and more victims of crime in the city. And then you think about, uh, you know, managing uh, the state's finances. Billions of dollars in state debt, right? So did I dodge a bullet or uh, that's probably the worst thing I could have said right now, not dodge yeah. a bullet, but um, uh, you know, did I, I, I just feel like I can still contribute without being the mayor. And my job right now is to navigate us through this fiscal crisis. And I'm actually glad that I have the experience in doing that. And when I compare it to everything else in my life, I feel like that's the easiest part of my life right now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Very good, Susanna. And um, no, I, uh, We'll close with this. I, I remember I had a conversation with you. Uh, it was right around the time we were thinking of running for mayor. Uh, and the world was uh, just without going into particulars, it was a private conversation. But this, the world is so much different now than it was. In, oh, goodness. Uh, uh, um, little sirens in the background. But the world is so much different now uh, than it was then. And it's just, it's, it's shocking Some sometimes consider those two years i think it's about maybe two and a half years i've lost track of time susanna but anyway it's amazing how things have changed yeah all right susanna mendoza thanks so much for taking time and coming to talk to me and um yeah let's have a mendoza report more often my friend all right very good it's uh it's always fun talking to you susanna mendoza with another Another Susanna Mendoza report. Poor, poor, poor. Yes, indeed. Uh, Susanna Mendoza. Uh, and uh, thanks, Susanna. <laughs> that riff she went on at the end about Adam Toledo was interesting. If you want to hear like a, uh, a counter view, uh, listen to the interview I did with Troy on Friday. Troy LaRavier, very uh, passionate. Uh, and uh, just went on some incredible riffs that blew my mind. And um, so I urge everybody, you know, you heard Susanna Mendoza's view of the world, listen to Troy's, uh, come to your own conclusion. Eventually somebody at the uh, Cook County State's Attorney's Office, Kim Fox, is going to have to make a decision as to what to do with the police officer who fired the gun that killed uh, Adam Toledo. And, uh, yeah, you've got uh, sort of the Susanna Mendoza version of things. Well, you know, it's a, uh, the man had to make an instant judgment. And, uh, he was working from the assumption that there was a gun in Adam Toledo's hand. Uh, and then you had Troy's view. 
Go ahead, D. You want to interrupt me? You got some no, breaking news? I was news? just going to say, you can uh, catch that interview, chicagoreader.com, uh, wherever else you download podcasts. That's all I was going to say. And I yeah. wanted to ask you one more question before we got out of here. What's that? Uh, the news uh, of yesterday may just float away by tomorrow. Who knows? Uh, the passing of one Walter Mondale. Yeah. Well, oh, my goodness. Uh, did not get any mention on this show. And uh, I, I um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, as a baby boomer. Uh, came of age, politically speaking, uh, in the 70s. Uh, Walter Mondale was an interesting political character. He represented the uh, Democratic establishment, um, the traditional Democratic establishment, but it had like a more kinder, gentle it's, it, tone to him. So he came out of the Hubert Humphrey uh wing of the democratic progressive democratic uh, party in Minnesota. And, uh, God, it's so bizarre. It's like ancient freaking history to consider it. Cause you think of Minnesota right now, it's got such a bad reputation for racism and police shootings. And, uh, what happened, what happened to George Floyd and, uh, Dante, Wright. But at one point, Minnesota Democrats represented like the compassionate human rights, like, voice of the Democratic Party. Hubert Humphrey was a great champion uh, for civil rights, civil rights legislation back in 1948, going back to 1948. And Walter Mondale was his disciple. And um, so he kind of represented, you know, the middle ground, if you get what I'm saying, uh, Dennis. Like he was like the bridge, maybe the, maybe some lefties would trust him a little bit. Uh, the Hubert Humphrey lost so much credibility when he supported the Vietnam War. Uh, so, yeah, it's just like a sign of time passing. Uh, and um, most folks, if they know Walter Mondale, know him as the guy who got clobbered by Ronald Reagan in 1984. And that was <laughs> if any millennial has even the vaguest notion of who Walter Mondale is, they don't know anything about civil rights planks in the 1948 uh, Democratic, uh, you know, convention. They they don't know about uh Hubert Humphrey standing up for civil rights and uh, Walter Mondale being his uh, disciple. They just know that uh, Ronald Reagan mopped the floor with Walter Mondale into a large degree because he took the issue of age and flipped it on Mondale in a debate with a, in a quip. And, uh, and that uh, Walter Mondale has been relegated as a footnote uh, to history. So yeah, I had a, um, I was kind of moved by it uh, when Walter Mondale died. I guess it's just a sign of time moving on, D. You know what I'm saying? I'm 93, right? Yeah, he was 93 years old. So anyway, Walter Mondale uh, was Jimmy Carter's vice president, uh, U.S. senator from Minnesota, and the Democratic nominee in 1984. D, I have a confession to make. Uh-oh. I did not vote for him. Uh, <laughs> in the, <laughs> big surprise there uh, in the Democratic um primary of 1984 i was a jesse jackson guy jesse jackson was running what can i tell you folks was a lefty then and i'm a lefty today yeah he's um, been around a while hey ben what's on tap for tomorrow's show <laughs> say that again what's on tap for tomorrow's show any ideas well i don't really know Jay. oh okay uh, well figured i'd try a new segment there leave a guy hanging got a couple you know what i should have phrased that more artfully you know dennis <laughs> I'm just going to keep that a secret to keep people <laughs> really interested. Who's right. he going to have? Figured I'd try a new little segment there on the show where we tease tomorrow's <laughs> show, but yeah, you didn't. Yeah, damn it. Damn it. 
Anyway, uh, but going back to uh, uh, the Adam Toledo situation, if you want to hear uh, Roy, uh, Troy's view of it, uh, I urge you to check it out. And the state's attorney is going to have a heck of a decision to make as to whether uh, to charge the police officer. All right. Enough on that. I want to thank uh, Senator Paul Strauss from the District of Columbia, the shadow senator for District of Columbia. That is a campaign. I think all lefties and progressives, liberals can jump aboard. I used the word progressive with them, D, because I didn't want to uh, like upset him with my whole new thing about it. I don't want to use the word progressive. But uh, for his, for the sake of Paul Strauss, yeah, it's yeah. like, who is this lunatic in Chicago? We want him coming back. Yeah, so I, I just said, all right, I'll call progressives. Uh, and, of course, thanks, Susanna Mendoza, uh, State Controller Susanna Mendoza, for returning for a Mendoza report. And thank, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of all Illinois, without whom the show would be possible. And as Susanna Mendoza and Senator Paul Strauss will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. Doobie. <laughs> just threw that one in there. Uh, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more. ChicagoReader.com slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A. V is in victory. S-K-Y. And wherever else you download podcasts. Become a Ben head. Help out the Ben Jarofsky show. ChicagoReader.com slash Jarofsky. And Ben's got a book. It's his greatest hits covering 40 years of Chicago journalism. And by the way, if you listen on the download, join us live sometime. We'll be back tomorrow. And who knows what will happen tomorrow? 1 p.m. Chicago Reader YouTube channel. I won't just turn the car around. I won't just turn the car around. I'm going to shut it off. I'm going to kick you out. And I'm going to make you walk home. I, um, right now, um,